The Art Curious Podcast is sponsored by AnchorLight. For more information about all of AnchorLight's artistic and creative endeavors, please visit anchorlightraleigh.com. Hi, everyone. Jennifer here today with a special episode of Art Curious to supplement our recently completed season, which was our year-long excursion into shock art throughout art history, especially works of art created prior to the second half of the 20th century. I hope that you enjoyed the season as much as I enjoyed producing it for you. Now, part of the fun of doing Art Curious is that I get to step back into my art historical boots and study the art that I love. Art that I specialized in when I was coming up in graduate school many moons ago. I love my day job as a curator who focuses on the art of the now, but I also still have a super soft spot for the good old stuff too. So this show provides me with the opportunity to study it all over again, and studying something anew for the first time in the better part of two decades. Because yes, I am that old. And sometimes that means that I learn new things. All the time. All the time. Like, I had no idea about the connection between the CIA, the Cold War, and abstract expressionism, which was the topic of our ninth episode way back in 2016. And before that story was suggested to me as an episode by a friend of mine who was also a listener, I had no clue. Likewise, I didn't know that the dude who invented Morse code was also a great painter, or that a bunch of artists used their talents to create what were essentially giant tank balloons to fool Hitler and other Axis troops. Or again, that Raphael essentially helped Michelangelo score that gig to paint the Sistine ceiling, even though he didn't intend to do that. So for our new listeners, these are all topics previously covered in episodes of our show. So please go back and find these in our podcast archives, either on our website, artcuriouspodcast.com, or on your favorite podcast player. Art history stretches over millennia and through every country on Earth. So there will always be so much more to know and more to learn, even for those of us who are paid to deal with art for a living. All of this to say, you guys, I had no idea. So halfway through the season, I covered a work of art that was not only shocking in its own time, but one that continues to confuse folks today and also changed the course of art history. This work of art was Fountain the 1917 art masterpiece that the anonymous artist R. Mutt showed at the Salon Exhibition of New York's Society of Independent Artists. The artist who has gone down in the history books as the creator of Fountain and the progenitor of the ready-made is Marcel Duchamp, a curious French artist who purportedly gave up painting at the age of 25, went on to create, in air quotes, works of art using commonplace objects, and then went on to have a fascinating second act as a professional chess player. This guy was so interesting. But a couple of Instagrammers reached out to me to tut-tut at me, and some not so gently, by the way, for not including details of the supposed actual author of The Ready-Made. While one Instagram in particular shamed me for my lack of knowledge, I gotta admit that I was a little bit schooled. I had not known that anyone other than Duchamp was potentially or partially responsible for Fountain or for any other infamous Ready-Made. Like I said, I am always, always learning something awesome and new in my readings for the show. And today, I'd like to carry on the conversation about Fountain by introducing you to a very fascinating person, the Baroness Elsa von Freitag Loringhoven. Before beginning, I do want to note that one of the reasons that Duchamp is still widely, widely considered to be the creator of Fountain is because authorship is often really difficult to ascertain. And many art historians consider the Baroness's involvement to be an unproven theory. 
That doesn't mean, however, that a second glance or a reconsideration of art history isn't a great thing. It is. It just means that Elsa von Freitag Loringhoven may have been involved, or she may not, and we don't know for sure. So let's just get into it, because either way, this lady was epic. Right after this break. There's a sense of pride that comes with being able to talk confidently, intelligently, about a subject. Or to be the only one at Trivia Night with all the answers. And that's why I love The Great Courses Plus. With this streaming service, we have the freedom to learn about virtually any topic. And not just to get the basics of something, but to truly master it. You can learn unique perspectives from top engaging experts in their fields. And there's unlimited access on The Great Courses Plus to thousands of lectures on topics like Celtic illustration or how genes influence our personalities, even screenwriting or practicing yoga for deep relaxation. And with The Great Courses Plus app, we have the flexibility to watch or learn anything just about anywhere. I recommend checking out one of their featured courses, which is The Great Artists of the Renaissance. As an obvious art history buff, I have so much fun watching these art courses on The Great Courses Plus, because The Great Artists of the Italian Renaissance is a truly comprehensive video course about the great Italian artists, from Leonardo to Michelangelo, Botticelli, Titian, and more. And this course dives deep into their painters, their subjects, and the artists they inspired afterwards. So you can get that awesome feeling of pride that comes with knowledge by signing up today for The Great Courses Plus. For a limited time only, they are offering my listeners an entire month for free. But to start your special free month trial, you must sign up today using my special URL. Go to thegreatcoursesplus.com slash art. Sign up now at thegreatcoursesplus.com slash art. Every morning when I get dressed, I keep reaching for the same beautiful bra because it is the most comfortable bra I have ever had, and why would I want to wear anything else? Third Love makes these incredible bras, all with straps that won't slip and tagless labels so you never feel itchy. They are made with lightweight, super thin memory foam cups that mold to your shape and are proprietary to Third Love, so they fit perfectly. And on top of all that, they've got options for every body out there with more than 70 sizes, including their signature half cup options. Don't know what bra or cup size is best for you? No problem. Let me tell you a little bit about the Fit Finder quiz. In less than a minute, you can take a quiz that will guide you to identify your breast size and shape and find the styles that will best fit your body. And it is actually fun to do this. I enjoyed it so much. And once you identify the best bra for you, Third Love has a 100% fit guarantee. So that offers every customer a 60-day period to wash it, wear it, and put it to the test so that if you don't love it, you can return it for free. And then Third Love will wash it and donate it to a woman in need. Third Love knows there's a perfect bra for everyone. And for me, it is their 24-7 classic t-shirt bra, which comes in a huge variety of colors. I got mine in this gorgeous light pink color, and there is no doubt about it. It is the most comfortable bra I have ever tried. Again, Third Love knows there's a right bra for you, so right now they are offering my listeners 15% off your first order. Go to thirdlove.com slash artcuriousnow to find your perfect fitting bra and get that 15% off your first purchase. That's thirdlove.com slash artcurious for 15% off today. 
getting a degree can sometimes feel like an unreachable goal, especially if you have a job, kids, or other obligations. And there are always a million excuses. Maybe you've also been out of school for a while, or you don't feel like you have the time or the money to go back, but you need that degree to advance your life and career. Enter the University of Texas at El Paso, or UTEP. UTEP is part of the country's largest university system, the University of Texas system, and UTEP's suite of fully online degree programs called UTEP Connect was created to make sure that the barriers keeping you from getting your degree are a thing of the past. UTEP degrees are accessible from anywhere and by anyone with a computer and an internet connection, which makes things really convenient and flexible. And they are affordable too, with one of the lowest tuition rates within the University of Texas system. And you don't have to worry about quality either, because these classes are the same as you'd get on campus with the same great content and professors. UTEP believes that student support is key to student success, so each student is assigned a point of contact at every stage of your journey, and these people will stick with you all the way until graduation. UTEP is accepting applications for fall 2019 now, and they have course counselors available to assist you with the online registration and course navigation process. For more details or to connect today, go to utepconnect.utep.edu or call UTEP Connect at 1-800-684-UTEP today for more. That's utepconnect.utep.edu. Welcome back to Art Curious. Elsa Plotz was born in the province of Pomerania in Prussia, now part of modern-day Germany, in 1874. She had a somewhat tumultuous relationship with her parents, especially her overbearing father, and she made a point to get out of Dodge as soon as she was old enough to do so. So while still a teenager, she escaped to Berlin, hoping to make it as an actress and a vaudeville performer. She traveled around Europe for a little bit, moving from Berlin to Munich and onwards to Palermo and beyond. And she immersed herself in the avant-garde art scenes popping up throughout Europe in the last decade of the 19th century. She was this incredible, interesting individual, an awesomely independent woman who went her own way and refused to be categorized. And that was something that she would bristle at, being categorized, for the rest of her days. So she did get married, though. She was a little traditional. And she got married a few times, first to an architect named August Endel, and then when their open marriage failed, she went on to marry her lover and August's friend, Felix Paul Grieve, who later became known under the name of Frederick Philip Grove. Elsa's marriage to Grieve produced one of the most intensely fascinating elements of her biography. Two years after their 1907 marriage, the couple found themselves in great debt. And to get out of this quagmire, Elsa helped her husband fake his own death, staging a suicide. And together, they then moved to the U.S. to begin a new life. He departed in 1909, and she joined him there the year later. Seriously, I told you this lady was amazing. And I have a big question. Why hasn't there been a movie made about her yet? Because this is perfect. For a year, until 1911, things seemed to have gone pretty okay for the couple, who managed a farm in a small town of Sparta, Kentucky. In 1911, however, they parted ways. It seems that Grieve deserted her. And so to make ends meet, Elsa modeled for artists from Cincinnati to Philadelphia and onward to New York City. And we all know that everything seems to happen in New York, right? Well, for Elsa, it really did. 
1913, she met her third and final husband, a German baron by the name of Leopold von Freitag Loringhoven, and they married late that year. Unfortunately, the baron only had his title to share with his new wife, and he had hardly any money or property. So the newly dubbed Baroness Elsa von Freitag Loringhoven continued with her modeling gigs as well as working a stint in a cigarette factory. And it was within the art and literary scene of the early 20th century that she really found her tribe. Due to her art modeling gigs, she frequented the apartment of art patron Walter Arnsberg, whose salons were a great meeting of the minds for several of the biggest names of the day, both in Europe and in the U.S., People like Marsden Hartley, Joseph Stella, Isadora Duncan, Man Ray, Beatrice Wood, Francis Picabia, Mina Loy, and many others, including Marcel Duchamp. It was within this exciting, cutting-edge environment that she produced poetry that shattered many expectations of what poetry could be. Frank, forthright, sexual, fractured, and onomatopoeic. And it was also the place where she may have birthed the concept of the ready-made. The Baroness was a collector, and she flourished when she grabbed items from her everyday life and then, through the power of her own declaration, transformed them into works of art. She became famous within the downtown New York art crowd for debuting sculptures, which were items she simply scavenged off the streets. A great example of the way that the Baroness worked comes from the American painter George Biddle, who visited her studio and later wrote about what he saw there noting, quote, It was crowded and reeking with strange relics, which she had purloined over a period of years from the New York gutters. Old bits of ironware, automobile tires, gilded vegetables, a dozen starved dogs, celluloid paintings, ash cans, every conceivable horror, which to her tortured yet highly sensitized perception became objects of formal beauty, unquote. The Baroness would then put these works on pedestals or even attach them to her clothes. They could be art, fashion, or something in between. The objects that comprised her first ready-made, legend has it, was discovered while she was en route to her own wedding to the Baron. On the street, she discovered a very rusted metal ring, a construction or a manufacturing element ring, not the kind you'd actually wear on your finger. But still, she was enchanted by it, and she viewed it as an auspicious sign for her own wedding day. So she grabbed it, and in a sentimental nod to her impending marriage, she dubbed it Enduring Ornament. And voila, art. This, by the way, happened in 1913, a year before Marcel Duchamp debuted his own first ready-made bottle rack in 1914. Duchamp, it must be stated, did come up with the name ready-made, however, although he didn't come up with it until he'd already started creating his own ready-made works. The metaphorical tussle between Elsa von Freitag Loringhoven and Marcel Duchamp for the title of ready-made instigator hits a fever pitch when we talk about 1917's Fountain. A theory holds that Elsa ultimately created it, and remember that created is often in air quotes when it comes to ready-mades. Or if she didn't create it outright, then some say that she deserves to be considered a collaborator or a co-creator. This idea reached an audience most fully beginning in 2002 after I was already out of college, and with the publication of a biography called Baroness Elsa by historian Irene Gamel. Gamel's argument hinges on a pretty straightforward-seeming letter that Marcel Duchamp wrote to his sister Suzanne around the time of the opening of the Society of Independent Artists exhibition. In the letter, Marcel writes, quote, One of my female friends, under a masculine pseudonym Richard Mutt, 
sent in a porcelain urinal as a sculpture. It was not at all indecent, no reason for refusing it. The committee has decided to refuse showing this thing, unquote. And Alfred Stieglitz, a friend to both the artists and one who would immortalize Fountain for us today as the person who recorded its existence via photographs, also confirmed that it was a woman who brought Fountain to the exhibition. Now, here's where things have gotten tricky for art historians over the years. Duchamp was known to inhabit an alter ego, a woman by the name of Eros Selevi, which is another fascinating element of this strange artist output, and we will be sure to include it in a future episode of Art Curious. Some believe that perhaps Duchamp anonymously submitted Fountain to the Salon's jury while in the guise of Selavi, a glamorous figure probably modeled on the Baroness herself. That being said, most of the surviving documents recording Duchamp as Eros Selavi, including most famously these photographic portraits created by Man Ray, these don't appear until the early 1920s. So while Eros Selavi may have been invented by Duchamp at this point, it's also possible that this excuse doesn't quite work with the timeline. Now, it has also been argued that the Baroness herself may have dropped off the work for the exhibition, but only as a favor to Duchamp, who, if you can remember from our earlier episode, had intended to submit his ready-made as a way of testing whether or not the work could or would be accepted without the jury's deliberation if a member of the art society had simply paid an entrance fee. And thus, Duchamp intended to remain anonymous, and so it seems he asked a friend, was it the Baroness, to deliver the piece. Is this what Duchamp means when he writes to his sister that his friend, quote, sent in a porcelain urinal as a sculpture, unquote? Well, you can see that it's really hard to say, especially considering the fact that the work of art disappeared almost immediately after the exhibition was complete, after thankfully being documented by those famous images by Alfred Stieglitz. But a few tantalizing clues are out there. Newspaper reviews covering the most scandalous work from the Society of Independent Artists Salon note that the artist, again, this so-called Richard Mutt, or R. Mutt, was a fellow based in Philadelphia. So guess who just happened to be living in Philadelphia temporarily at the time? You got it, our Baroness. And while Duchamp noted later that he simply purchased the urinal wholesale from the J.L. Mott Plumbing Company, hinted at perhaps by the surname Mutt, historians have been unable to locate that particular model of urinal at any of J.L. Mott's surviving catalogs from that time. It's entirely possible, sure, that Duchamp forgot where he actually purchased his parts for his fountain or that he misnamed the outlets in later reports. Or it could be a cover-up, and Elsa von Freytag-Loringhoven is the creative mind behind the whole thing. How would we know? And will we ever know? Part of the reason why it's difficult to ascertain the authorship of the Baroness's works is that many of them were sent out into the world as functional, or were at least made to be lived with in a way that the others, like Duchamp's works, hadn't intended their pieces to be. In an article for the online magazine Artsy, written by Vanessa Thill just this last fall, it's noted that this was Elsa's ultimate downfall. Phil writes, quote, Ever the renegade, her lack of financial success is in part due to her disregard for finalizing her objects as art. She worked against this binary to infuse art into daily life, unquote. By going against the traditional system to monetize her works of art, she struggled financially, just as she had done throughout most of her life. Not helping matters is that only a handful of her ready-made survive, 
And sometimes the surviving ones have met the fate that have befallen many a female artist over the centuries. They have been misidentified or claimed as a work by a male artist. A famous example of this is a 1917 piece called God, now in the collection of the Philadelphia Museum of Art. Consisting of a twisted cast iron plumbing trap, rusted out, of course, attached to a wooden miter box, this work was long attributed to another one of the Baroness's friends, a man named Morton Schamberg, a man who, like Stieglitz did with Fountain, photographed God for safekeeping. To be fair, he also was confusing matters by inscribing his last name on the work, so there is that. It is now believed, however, that the highly collaborative Baroness Elsa von Freitag Loringhoven came up with the concept and collected the miter box and plumbing trap titled The Work of Art, leaving Schamberg to assemble the work and then photograph it. So because of this, the piece is now officially attributed to them both. There's now a movement to reconsider Elsa von Freitag Loringhoven within the scope of art history, particularly within Dada. The hashtag Justice for Elsa has made the rounds on social media occasionally, though when you look it up, you're probably far more likely to find joking posts connected to the Disney movie Frozen than to our artist of the day. And I am all for Justice for Elsa. But it does really bring up some huge questions. Not only whether or not the Baroness is indeed the creator of the famous and infamous fountain, but also, what does it mean if she is? What does it mean for us to rewrite history to confirm that one of the most daring works of art of the 20th century, some have called it the most important work of art created during the 20th century, what happens when we've recast the creator of that work as a woman? It is sure to make some people really mad. And I can't say for sure what kind of legacy that will have. But I do know one thing. Art history is looking so much more interesting these days. And I can't wait to continue to learn more. Thank you for listening to this brief reconsideration of Fountain and for listening to our latest season of Art Curious. This episode was written, produced, and narrated by me, Jennifer Dassel, with additional writing and research help by Kelsey Breen. Our production and editorial services are provided by Kabumki. Video, content, ideas. Learn more at kabonki.com. Additional editing help is by Hannah Roberts. For more details about Art Curious, including learning more about our upcoming season this fall, please visit our website, artcuriouspodcast.com. See you soon.